The title of my message today is The Greatest Explanation of Our World Ever. The Greatest Explanation of Our World Ever. We are in Romans chapter 1, and I dare you to find any other literature, any other place where there is some attempt to explain the reality of the world that we live in that does it better than the one that we have in front of us today. Now, who cares? Who, who cares? And I'm going to assume today that you care. Now, you might be somebody who says, I don't care about the world that we live in, uh, the national politics, the international dramas. I don't care about that stuff. I hate watching the news, and that's fine. But I am here to, I know that you care about your world. You care about your personal world, your family, your relationships. Even, even the guy, that, that hermit that goes off the grid and lives in a cabin out in the woods and doesn't pay taxes for like three decades and signs his name with an X, even that guy cares about his personal world. Why go to all that trouble to control your world in that way if you don't care about it? You care about your personal world and possibly the general world. We all do. And we all have a perspective, a, a, like a pair of glasses that we, we look at the world around us with and try to explain it. We try to sort of put it in some kind of philosophy of life that makes sense to us. There's many of these out there, of course, and our explanations, each of ours might be slightly different, but it's, they're an amalgamation of life experiences and what our parents taught us and people that have inspired us and books we've read and joys and sorrows in life, et cetera, et cetera. All of these go together to create this grid through which we look at the world. And then there are things that happen in our life and in our world that challenge the grid. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, you have cancer. You have a child that you love, something happens. 9-11 nationally is an example of our grids being challenged and our explanations of reality being challenged. And all of these things are real, they're undeniable, but our grids they, they struggle to explain these sort of things. I think about, for example, nationally right now, what's going on in the whole debate about what happened at the school in Parkland. And even yesterday, all of the protests and all the things, it's front page of the news today. What are the questions that are being asked? How could this happen? What is the cause? Who is the problem? What is the solution? These are the questions they're the same questions they've asked after every other tragedy. They're the same questions that are going to be asked after future tragedies that haven't happened yet. And all along, as man lives his life and these things happen, the Bible is over here in the corner waving its hands saying, I have an explanation. I have an explanation over here, if you'll listen to me, that explains everything that's going on. Why it happens, the way that it happens, who's behind it, what's the cause. An explanation that has stood the test of time. It has stood the test of triumphs and it's stood the test of tragedies. It uniquely explains why things are the way that they are. Everything from 9-11 to Parkland to whatever you brought into this room today that has you distraught 
and troubled and is challenging your grid. Now, we have a lot of ground that we're going to cover today, and I want to remind you that yesterday or last week, we got going here in this section in Romans 1, verse 18 and following, and we saw that Paul begins his explanation of the gospel not with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or you know uh, everything's roses and daisies. No, he begins with the wrath of God. His starting point is God's wrath and judgment against sin, and we see in this that Paul wants to explain the bad news, by, and so by understanding the bad news, we can know what makes the good news good. And the gospel is good news if you understand the bad news. And the bad news is, is that the wrath of God is against sin and is against sinners. And we noted last week that Jesus doesn't throw just sins into hell, he throws sinners into hell. That God is angry at sinners who are in rebellion against him. And yet, even after the fall, this world around us, the grandeur of this world, the majesty of this world, the beauty of this world continues to shout to sinners who are in rebellion against God that I'm here and this is what I'm like and enjoy this pleasure and this beauty and look at the stars and gaze and realize that this is the God that you are rejecting. I am here. So much so, Paul says, that men are without excuse. Nobody's gonna be able to stand at judgment someday and say, you never told me anything. God's gonna say, I was speaking to you every single day. You weren't listening. And that not listening is what means men are without excuse, refusing to hear the truth that is right there before them. And so what Paul does now is he continues to develop this. So we, we move on now in verse 21, and we're, we're doing 21 through the end of the chapter, so this is a big section, okay? So hang in there with me. We're gonna do the best that we can. Notice what he says, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul here is summarizing The story of man after the fall. Adam and Eve sin against God. God says, because you've sinned, you're surely going to die. He says, you can't stay in the Garden of Eden anymore, and he casts him out. And the story from that point on is the story of sin like an infection working its way through every aspect of humanity, every aspect of our personhood. The created world reveals God But in spite of this innate knowledge of him, humans continue on a resolute path saying, I'm going to live as if there is no God. Because if there is a God, two things are required of us. And notice what he says here. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Okay? Do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And this is a theme that we're going to see throughout Romans because the the root of sin is a failure to glorify God. It is a falling short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And so this root of sin, a refusal to offer God worship, in fact, the root word there in the Greek for the honor is that. It It is to glorify. Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what God made us to do and what he made us to be like, but mankind in sin doesn't do that, refuses to honor God, refuses to give thanks to him. A refusal to 
honor him as the ultimate reality in life and in everything. Mankind says this, no, I will not live in submission to you, God. I will not place you in a spot of higher significance than me. I will not view your will and your purpose in this will in this world as more important than my will. And I will not give thanks to you. Okay? I will not give thanks to you. We we give thanks to people uh, for often for things that are given to us. We get a gift. We acknowledge that as a gift. We write a thank you note to the giver of the gift. What Paul says here is mankind after the fall refuses to write a thank you note ever to God. Refuses to acknowledge that there is anything in this world that is given to us, that is a gift to us. Because if I was to acknowledge that this was given to me, I would have to acknowledge that there was a giver of the gift. But mankind doesn't want a giver. Mankind doesn't want a God. Mankind doesn't want to say thank you to God. Mankind doesn't want to worship God. Mankind wants to live as a functional atheist in a material world where I am God and I get to do what I want. Fallen man wants God out of the picture entirely. And yet, every day the sun is rising. Every day the coffee tastes good. Every day we see that beautiful child. Every day we have these experiences that give us joy and wonder and pleasure. And mankind over it, it's not like I just one time sort of say I'm an atheist. No, every day I refuse, I refuse, I refuse. I will not acknowledge what this world is shouting to me right now. This is like going to Disney World and denying that there was a Disney. Okay? To stand next to Space Mountain and go, there is no Disney. There is no Disney. Hello, Mickey. Hello, Minnie. There is no Disney. You think, who could go to Disney World and deny Disney? The evidences of Disney are all around you in Disney World. The only way you could do that was if you chose to seriously suppress the truth that there is a Disney in a Disney World. And that is exactly what mankind does. This refusal, again, it's not a one time like I'm deciding now. It is every day I am refusing to see and to hear and to taste and to experience this created world that is shouting that there is a God and a giver of good gifts. I refuse, no matter what, to honor him. And Paul describes this atheistic, functional atheism in a material world as futile thinking and foolish hearts. Do you see that? Their their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened. And this, again, is a theme in Romans that wrong worship leads to wrong thinking and leads to immoral living. Now, it has to because, and this is now the our grid, go back to what I started with here, God is, the, God is the ultimate reality. Okay, God is the starting point of everything. And if you deny God, it means that you are in your conclusions about what is, matters in life, you are starting at a false premise and you can only come to false conclusions if you say there is no God. And all the philosophers and all the intellectuals, all the scientists, all the political pundits 
who opine and write books and fill magazines and fill Barnes and Noble with their theories and explanations about everything, they come to wrong conclusions because they begin at the wrong place. They do not begin with God. They do not begin with his revelation. They try to explain everything without God. And you come to some crazy conclusions. This is, Proverbs says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. That is foolish thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, last week, Stephen Hawking died. Did you see that in the news? Okay, probably in... I'll say our lifetime, some of you are grossly older than I am, but (laughs) in our lifetime, I would say he's probably the most famous scientific intellectual, would be Stephen Hawking. And if you know his story uh, and how he was, you know, very, at a very young age, bound to a wheelchair and in a very slow decline over decades, and yet this incredible intellect to continue to write books and to you know, really be a celebrity in the world, explaining, trying as best he can to explain where the universe came from. They did a movie about his life two years ago, a brilliantly acted movie called The Theory of Everything. His goal was to find some theory that explained everything, and he never found it. Why? Stephen Hawking was an atheist. He was trying with his incredible intellect to explain everything without God. And when that truth is suppressed and that truth is denied, it has to be replaced. Because one of the things that's true about every human being, you here, my dear friend, is you were made to worship something. Mankind cannot exist without worshiping something or someone. And so the natural result of man denying that there is a God, refusing to honor him, refusing to give thanks to him, is that man has to trade God for something else. Something has to be that starting point, that core, that ultimate in his life. And that's verse 22. Look at what Paul says. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God, there's the exchange language, you get that? Traded the glory of the immortal God for what? Images resembling mortal man, and images resembling birds, and images resembling animals, and images resembling creeping things. So we see here that truth is denied. There is no God, no matter how beautiful that sunset is. Truth is suppressed, and then truth is exchanged. Truth is traded. And obviously, I hope you see this, what a horrible trade, okay? So you have the glory of God. As a human being, prior to the fall, you have the glory of God. You can live to the glory of God. You can live in relationship to the most glorious being in all the world, God. But man looks at that value. What's the value of knowing God forever? Okay, whatever value you want to place on that, I would say it's like infinite maybe. Okay? Mankind looks at what is infinitely valuable and then starts looking around wanting to trade it. 
wanting to barter it. Who'll give me something for the glory of God? What can I find here, maybe? Who wants to trade me? And notice what man trades God's glory for. Images. Icons. Things that he makes with his own hands. He trades what is infinitely glorious with what is material and man-made and temporal. Do you see how this is like a, this is the worst deal that has ever been done, okay? I don't care how much you paid for your car and how much it's depreciated since you bought it. And thinking about it right now, you're all depressed. That perception of lost value is nothing compared to what mankind does by, by taking the glorious God and trading him for some material thing, some God, a counterfeit God. And of course, the ancient world was filled with gods. There, was all, there were all kinds of gods. People would, I was reading a book about this yesterday, waiting for my car to be worked on. Maybe that's why it came to my mind. I was reading a book yesterday about this and just the the way that people would they, would, they would, they would collect a gods as insurance policies based on whatever they thought their needs were, like a mutual fund of this stock and this thing, and I'm gonna put all this together, and these are my gods because I'm trying to hedge against the bad weather and the crops and me not having a son and this different thing. This is the, this is the way that the ancient man worshipped. These gods are not gods. These were man-made idols that correlated to what man wanted without God. So the gods were the important priorities like material success, military success, fertility, sexual pleasure. So we have gods like Baal and Asheroth and Venus and Aphrodite and many, many others. These man-made counterfeit gods that man would look to for comfort would bow down to in the sense that my hope is in this God. Absolutely foolish. All of them a replacement God for the one true God. And friends, do you see how we have seriously traded down? We have seriously traded down. Did you hear about the guy who traded his new Lamborghini for that used Yugo? I made that up. It's just like the best example of like an absolute idiot, right? We would look at a person like that and say, that is just nothing more than a capital I idiot. Who would do that? And that is, that is such a small comparison to the grand, terrible deal that people in this world and down through the ages have done every single day trading the glorious God of the universe for a thing. Why? Suppress the truth, deny the truth, and then trade the truth. Trade it away in the worst deal of all time. And so Paul is he's explaining again, he's explaining why the world is the way that it is and the gods that drive us and how we have forsaken the one true God 
Now, verses 24 and 25 are our Easter text for next week. So I'm actually going to skip it, okay? But we're coming back to it, okay? We're coming back to it. We pick it up now in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And now I have your attention. Now I want you to see something before we get into that text specifically. Look at verse 24. It says, therefore God gave them up to what? The lust of their heart. Look at verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Look at verse 28. Since they didn't acknowledge God, God gave them up. Now it's the same words, it's the same language, and it's basically the outline for the chapter. Because what Paul is doing now is saying, he's explaining how God responds to man's failure to worship him and failure to acknowledge him. And basically what God does is this, he gives us up. And in that sense it means that God gives us what we want. God gives us what we want. Mankind, Adam and Eve from the beginning and everybody else saying, God forget you, I wanna live as if there is no you, I want my freedom against you. And God says, Okay, here you go. God gives us up. Not in the sense of failing to love us, this is why Jesus came, but he gives us up to our passions and our, our grid. If it's freedom you want, it's freedom you'll get. Mount says divine judgment is God permitting people to go their own way. C.S. Lewis said this, the choice of man, that, that, that this choice by man allows him now to enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. So we think, yay, we're free, we're free from God, there is no God. And we fail to realize that this freedom is actually a terrible bondage. A terrible bondage. This, this reminds me of like a teenager who is chafing under the oppressive rule of his parents. Down with authority. I demand my freedom. I can't believe these rules. They're so oppressive. A curfew. Who does this? Make my bed. Down with you. I must be free. And what that teenager fails to realize is that those parents in his life are protecting him from untold, unforeseen consequences that if he actually was on his own, he would come to realize that within a couple months he would be living in a van down by the river. But the teenager isn't thinking about that, is completely unaware of that, and doesn't realize the fact that his parents haven't kicked him out of the house is simply because they love him. 
It's a perfect picture of mankind as a whole. I want to be free. I don't want a God. And we see in this that God doesn't have to enact punishment, like to bring something in supernaturally. He has built within the natural order punishment within the sin itself. That those that give themselves to the sin experience sin is its own punishment. Okay, perhaps not immediately, and maybe you're here today and you're like, hey, I got away with it because I ain't got nothing because of this. Eventually, the chickens come home to roost. Who pays the penalty over time for an immoral lifestyle? We live in a world that is moral, and we cannot avoid it. And sin, over time, corrodes us and degrades us, and it slowly and oftentimes imperceptibly drains our life of meaning. We, somehow we don't feel alive anymore. We don't feel human anymore because sin has sucked it out of us. Now, more on that Easter, okay? That's Easter message. If you want to come back for that, okay? This passage before us, though, shows that the second evidence of God's departure from man's grid of reality is man's utter rejection of God's design for gender and sexuality. Now, I realize this isn't really a hot news item right now. Are you with me? Okay, that was sarcastic. Okay, actually, this is ripped right from the front pages of the news, isn't it? Same-sex marriage, transgenderism, which bathroom do I use? Who gets to fight in the military? From this week, that's the big issue. So these are not small matters here, and I am aware of this debate. It's dominating the news. I, this is a bigger deal now than at any time in my entire life that I can remember in our society. Massive deal. So the question is, what does God say about it? And I want to remind you, let's, let's, let's remember how we got here. A rejection of God is a rejection of his purposes in my life. Okay, and again, People then are living in a functionally atheistic material world and trying to explain reality and trying to carve out a sense of meaning and purpose apart from God. But without God, all definitions for everything are self-determined. Now there is no standard for what this is and that is and you say this and I say that and because there is no God. And that includes what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Those definitions are out the door if there is no God who is saying this is what it means to be a man and this is what it means to be a woman. Hence the confusion in our society. But it goes even deeper than this, and I, I'm gonna also prime the pump. The Sunday after Easter, we are doing a message here entitled Sex, it's about more than you think, okay? Sex, it's about more than you think. So not only do you need to come on Easter, you need to come 
Sunday after Easter, and I would suggest pretty much every Sunday after that as well, okay? But here we see one way that God has a purpose for gender, marriage, and sex, okay? So what is his purpose for these things? Let's go back to where, when he told us. This is Genesis 2, verse 24. God lays this down as a creation mandate, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that's just one verse, but there is so much in this one verse that speaks to all of this, this, uh, these issues that our society is dealing with. Notice that God's plan includes biological gender, a gender that is based on biological plumbing, It is a man who leaves his father and mother. Okay, so for the father and the mother to be such, it means that there was a male and a female that reproduced to make the son who's now gonna leave him. You with me? Okay. The man unites to a wife. And so there we have then heterosexual marriage, not same-sex marriage, but heterosexual marriage, and they become one flesh. And that word for one flesh there, it it insinuates a lot, but it certainly includes sexual union within marriage. So in one verse, we have so much, including gender-based biology, heterosexual, I think I said that backwards actually, biology-based gender is the way I should have said that, heterosexual marriage, Sex that is reserved for marriage. He doesn't take his girlfriend and become one flesh. He takes his wife and becomes one flesh. And that needs to be said in the church and outside the church. And this oneness is more than sexual. It is marital. And that is God's plan. Or to say it in the context of Romans 1, that is the natural order. That's the way that God made it. And this, frankly, this may sound like really new to you, but this is Orthodox Christian teaching from the beginning, what I just said. That's what the church has said. That's what pre-church God's people have always believed and taught. It's only in this world that it sounds crazy. So in the Bible story then, after the fall, we come to Genesis 19. And we have the very first time in the Bible where there is non-heterosexual sexual relations happening, or what we call homosexual relations. This is Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we find that there was this society of cities there in the Middle East that was consumed with homosexual passion. They were so consumed that When God's angels came to Sodom in human form, every male in town was pawing at the door wanting to have sex with him. Okay, so very early in the story, we have homosexuality on the scene, and it continues in the story of the Bible by being found in several other places. For example, Leviticus 18, you shall not, command of God, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. 
Now, in spite of what people are saying out there, even within certain Christian communities, there is not one reference to homosexuality in the Bible that is positive. And certainly not here in Romans 1. Paul says here that he describes it as dishonorable passion. And notice that this includes both male homosexuality and lesbian sexuality. And both of these, he says, are contrary to nature. Now, you might look at Romans 1 and say, it seems to me that the Apostle Paul is picking on, why pick on homosexuality? I mean, there's so many other sins. Why, why does he highlight this one sin? Well, before I explain that, I want you to realize that in the rest of the chapter, he's going to list 21 other sins that are examples of mankind living apart from God, okay? So there is no shortage of sin here, and there is nobody that has ever lived that isn't somehow described in Romans 1. So why does he highlight homosexuality in a list of 20-plus other sins that maybe he could have picked one of these other ones? Why, why this one? Well, the answer to that is that homosexuality is the easiest to see how it is contrary to God's nature or God's plan his design. And this is mostly biology and plumbing. Okay? Biology and plumbing. Homo human beings were made to be heterosexual. Heterosexual body parts fit together sexually. This is basic engineering, and if you're confused, I would encourage you to talk with a Purdue grad who might be with us today. <laughs> So much so that homosexual sexuality requires overcoming biological engineering. Or to say it this way, it goes against nature or it goes against the way that God made the parts to work. And like all sin, homosexuality is a rejection of God's purpose and plan in the world. Like every other sin is that, right? So the Bible is not homophobic any more than it is phobic about any sin because all sin falls short of the glory of God, no matter what it is, and God's purpose in our life. So I think that leads us then to ask this question, how should we view this one particular sin, homosexuality? And what I would encourage us to do as a church is to view it the same way that we view any sin through a grid of scripture, which includes creation, fall, redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for all sin, including homosexual sin, and ultimately redemption and eternal life forever for any who believe, no matter what you have done. Now the church, I think, historically, and I say the church, generic church, Big C Church, has failed to do this, in my opinion, by making too much of homosexuality and almost giving the sense that it's the unpardonable sin. I fear that the opposite is actually the danger currently for us because of cultural expectation and political correctness that is pressuring the church to be accepting and affirming of it. That's the danger we have today. 
So many churches describe their position towards this issue in a way that I like, and I would suggest is a way forward for us as a church regarding it. They will say, regarding homosexual, homosexuals, that we are welcoming but not affirming. Okay, We are welcoming but not affirming. Now here's what's good about that. We can say exactly the same thing about any sin that walks in the door. We are welcoming, we welcome sinners to the church, to the cross, and to Jesus. We don't affirm it. We're not condoning it. We're not celebrating it. Rather, we are prayerful that God can redeem it and transform that person's life into the purpose that God made all of us for. So we're not picking on anyone or any sin. You are welcome here, but we're not going to normalize that sinful lifestyle. We're hoping to see it redeemed by God's grace and for you to walk in newness of life through Jesus Christ. Now, I remember when I was in college, I attended a large evangelical church, and the pastor of that church, uh, this is back when AIDS AIDS was first kind of on the scene, and there was lots of medical mystery about it and cause of it and cure of it and all of that, and it was a really, really big issue. And this pastor uh, communicated to the main hospital in the city that if they had anybody that was suffering from AIDS, that he would be willing to come and to meet with them and to pray with them. And so they started to invite him to come because there were people that were dying of AIDS in the hospital. And so this pastor would come, and oftentimes that individual's homosexual partner would be there, and he would, he would pray with them, and he would try to comfort them and meet their needs, just kind of love them. Well, guess what? Word got out in the homosexual community of that city that there was this one pastor that actually cared about them. Well, word got out around in the church as well that he was doing this, and not everybody was happy about it. And I was there the Sunday that he read, I believe it was an anonymous letter. He read an anonymous letter that somebody had written to him where basically in the letter they said, Pastor, if you keep ministering to these people, we're going to have homosexuals in our church. You want to talk about a quiet moment in a church. That was a quiet moment, like it got quiet. And I remember him looking up with fire in his eyes and saying, yes, we will have homosexuals in our church, and they can come and sit down with all the liars, cheat, and adulterers we already have here. So let's just break the ice. Are homosexuals welcome at Bethel Church? Are adulterers welcome at Bethel Church? Are cheats and liars already here at Bethel Church? (laughs) Yes. And we're not going to affirm any of those lifestyles. But we are going to welcome any human being who is seeking answers for life, spiritual answers for life, 
and to love them and care for them and to meet people in the mess of their lives and to point them to a Savior who died for all our sins. Amen? Okay. Amen. All right. Now, I'm just going to read this last section very quickly. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceitfulness, malice, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And people try to organize this list. I don't know if there's any organization. It's just like, bam, bam, bam. You want to know what it's like when God gives uh, us up to our, our own passions? It's like this and this and this and this and this and this. And the chapter just ends with like despair and sorrow. Like this is horrible. How could this be? This is what you get when you trade God's glory for a moral cesspool. The world that we live in. Who would do it? Only an idiot would do it. Only somebody absolutely absurd thinking would give up God's favor and blessing. Now, very quickly, I want to end with on a word of hope here, okay? I don't want to end on sorrow. I want to end on a word of hope. And I'm just going to read very quickly something Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You say, that doesn't sound encouraging to me because I see myself in the list. Here's what's encouraging. The next words out of his, uh, off of his pen is this, and such were some of you. Were. In other words, the gospel changes who we are. Yes, I was this and I was that, but now who am I? I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am forgiven of my sins no matter what they are. I am a child of God. I am a, I am a recipient of eternal life. And so we have then this basic gospel theme that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. And all of these sins represented right here in this room. If this is you and you're like, man, I'm looking for something. What you are looking for is Jesus and freedom that comes by putting your faith and trust in him. Believing by faith that he died for your sins, no matter what they are. And receiving the gift of eternal life, which God promises to all who believe in him. So in the end, we're bad. God's glorious. All praise to him. Amen.